Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 662 of the podcast and it is Friday the 16th of December 2022 as I record this. In today's show, I'm talking to Jane Friedman about some of the recent changes in publishing and interesting news items including the Department of Justice Penguin Random House case which had some incredible insights into traditional publishing as well as how acquisitions of this type of thing impact authors, why backlist sales are important, and also how to use paid newsletters as part of your multiple streams of income. It was something I was considering, and as I mentioned in the interview, but uh, I decided against it after talking to Jane, so that was quite good. (laughs) Just to say also that Jane has just released her new edition of the book Publishing Paths, which we do mention in the episode, and I'll include a link in the show notes. A decade ago when Jane started this, uh, it's just a sort of a a nice printable sheet basically it only had two sides about a decade ago when all the talk was traditional versus indie but now it is incredibly nuanced and has loads and loads of different options so it's it's a good sort of snapshot of how things have changed so that discussion with Jane is coming up in the interview section So in publishing and book marketing news, well, there was some surprising news this week from the USA Today bestseller list, which uh, I've hit as an individual author and in a multi-author box set. So the bestseller list is on indefinite hiatus because the parent company has laid off loads of people, uh, including the person who has been compiling it for over a decade. And uh, as reported in various publications, uh, I'll link to the US News, which is not doesn't have a paywall. But yes, uh, the USA Today suspends weekly book bestseller list after layoffs. Now, it's a surprise. It was surprising in many ways. I I think it was most surprising to me that one person has been doing it for so long. I had no idea that one person sat there compiling this list. I, for some reason, I thought they might have some automated system that actually compiled things. (laughs) But this is a blow for many authors that it got shut down as it was one of the few lists that has not changed the rules to shut indie authors out. So back in 2014, I was part of a multi-author box set run by the fantastic thriller author Diane Capri. And we hit the New York Times list as well as the USA Today. But And lots of romance authors had done it and we were amongst the first sort of thriller authors to do it. And soon after, the New York Times list changed the rules. So you can't do that anymore. <laughs> now here in the UK, pretty much every list is curated curated or paid for or very restricted in terms of who they, uh, what they count for the list. And there is no pure, probably there is literally no list that is based on pure sales across all formats, including digital. Every single one is a game. (laughs) And if you want to hit various lists, you have to play the game. So indies have generally focused on the USA Today. And for those who say, oh, lists don't matter, Well, they don't matter. I totally agree. In one way, they really don't matter. They don't change your life. They don't make you rich. And in fact, mostly you have to pay out quite a lot in marketing to get 
to the list. And they are all gameable. This is the thing. I feel like when we're just readers, before we were in the author community, we didn't know this. You know, you walk into, um, like here in the UK, WH Smiths, which is... Um, mainly sort of a stationery store, but they have a lot of bookshops. And those those places are paid for. Uh, this is all now known by those of us in the industry. But for readers, they don't necessarily know this. But yeah, bestseller means pretty much nothing. But also it means a lot. And I want to acknowledge that. I remember uh, years back now, someone belittled my ambition to hit lists. And I was like, look, you've come out of traditional publishing you have validation in other ways. For those of us who never traditionally published, validation on these lists, you know, there is some social proof that says, I've hit this list. And all it means is you have played the game in a way that means you have managed to play the game well enough, according to the rules at the time. Of course, that's the other thing. But yeah, so in a way, they don't matter at all. In a way, they do matter. Uh, of course, indie authors get validation from money in our bank accounts, from book reviews, from reader emails. But it's still nice to have the orange bestseller badge on Amazon, for example, or to put letters by your name. I understand that. And I use my letters uh, in my bio. So bestseller lists have always been a game. But of course, the game has changed across the industry. The data is mostly obscured. So Amazon data, for example, is very obscured. And they do, um, obviously, Amazon has various lists, but they have charts now. And those charts really do represent bestsellers. But sometimes those bestsellers won't make other bestseller lists because their books might be only on Amazon, for example. Also, Brandon Sanderson didn't hit any bestseller list with his $41 million Kickstarter. Uh, and no one will hit any list selling direct from Shopify or Payhip or Gumroad or any of these things. And no one will hit a list from KU page reads. So we're sort of increasingly moving into this world where the games have changed and only you can decide what your definition of success is. I feel like in uh, in the sort of discussion with Jane as well in the interview section, things have changed and we, we can't keep harking back to the things that mattered a decade ago when the game was very different. Perhaps the time of mass market bestseller lists is over and we need to find new ways of social proof in an increasingly fragmented market. And so I guess that's the question for you today. What is your definition of success, first of all? How are you going to play that game in 2022? three. <laughs> I was going to say 2022, but no, we're moving into 2023. So what is your definition of success? What is the game that you have to play in order to reach that success? And how are you going to play that game? So um, for me, I have for many years, um, you know, been very happy to be a six figure author per year, you know, making over six figures from book sales alone. So this is not my entire revenue, just my book sales revenue. And this year, my book sales income dipped below six figures. And I want to get it back over that six figure line in 2023. So I will be playing the game of writing books and selling books. <laughs> in 2023 in order to make revenue in my bank account. So that game never stops. The game of writing and book marketing, that never stops. So what about you? 
What is your definition of success? How can you play that game in 2023? You can leave a comment on the show notes. You can tweet me at The Creative Pen if you're still on Twitter, or you can email me, Joanna, at thecreativepen.com or leave a comment on the YouTube channel. So in my personal update, I got the final round of proofreading back on my pilgrimage book. I formatted it, sent it to my book designer. So now we are in process. We're actually making the various special editions for the Kickstarter, which I've also been preparing. Thanks to Holger and Guy for feedback. My pre-launch page is now up. So if you are interested, please sign up at thecreativepen.com forward slash pilgrimage, which goes through to Kickstarter. And that pre-launch page doesn't commit you to spending any money. You just get notified when the um, Kickstarter launches. So here's the short blurb so you can tell if you might be interested. Pilgrimage attracts the seekers, those with a question to answer, a problem to solve, a sin to atone for, an illness to be cured, a prayer to be answered. Pilgrims walk with a desire to make a change, to mark a boundary from one life to another, to heal, to escape. I needed all of these and more. Perhaps you do too. In this book, I share my lessons learned and insights from solo walking three ancient ways. The Pilgrim's Way, the St Cuthbert's Way and the Camino de Santiago. It includes historical, religious and cultural aspects and plenty of practical tips, as well as questions for you to consider around your own journey. So uh, that is also my reading voice. <laughs> so if you'd like the audiobook, you can also join the Kickstarter and I will be reading it and I'll be get, getting on with recording the the, um, the audiobook over the, over the holiday period. I should also say I am a secular pilgrim, um, but I have a chapter on faith and reflections on the spiritual aspects of the journey. I kind of call myself spiritual, um, but I have quite a uh, strong religious background and, and a degree in theology and a lot of interest. In, in a lot of this. So whether you are a person of faith or a seeker, as I, I guess I call it, um, you'll find it interesting. Or if you're just a walker and uh, you're, you like walking, you'll also find it interesting. Or if you like travel, uh, or if you're just interested in a bit about me, because it, it's pretty, uh, it is a memoir as well as sort of travel, travel tips. Okay, so if you're interested, sign up at thecreativepen.com forward slash pilgrimage. So I also shared my book list for the year on the blog uh, with recommendations for fiction and nonfiction. I read a lot and I share the most memorable books, the ones that stay with me. Link in the show notes or just on the creativepen.com forward slash blog if you want some books for your holiday reading. On AI tools, uh, I'm sure you've seen more and more media out there about ChatGPT, uh, the, the good stuff and the bad stuff. Um, but I'm hearing from more of you every day who are trying different things. So I thought I'd share some of my new use cases this week. First of all, I use ChatGPT to rewrite my sales copy for Free Booksy and Bargain Booksy. So if you use those services, which are fantastic for book marketing, you can only have a couple of lines as your sales copy, which is not the same as your your um, 
your Kobo or your Apple or your Amazon sales copy. So I generate, I, I used it to put in my old and I wanted to change it up a bit because I've been using the same one for years. So I've changed it up a bit and also generated more ad copy. So definitely chat, chat GPT, great for ad copy, rewriting it, changing it up. I also, and I'm really happy about this, I also used Midjourney, which is, you know, an AI um, art generation tool to make a custom ornamental break for vellum and also for my print edition. I just wanted a plain scallop shell, which is the symbol of St. James and used by pilgrims on the Camino. And I've never done a custom ornamental break before. So I was really thrilled about that. I shared it on Twitter. Um, but yeah, it's just a plain scallop shell. But so I've never actually done a custom ornamental break before. So I'm kind of ridiculously pleased with myself. And now I want to do them for every single book. <laughs> just creating so much fun. Really, I'm having so much fun at the moment. Uh, In terms of writing, I'm also editing my short story about combat, uh, my combat photographer. And my goal is to get that to my editor this week. It is a strange little story, but that's what short stories are for in my mind. They're for the book, for the little stories that you come up with that you're like, that is not a book. I mean, it could be a book, but a short story is sort of just a snapshot. And uh, and I say snapshot because it's about photographer. (laughs) But yes, that will emerge in early 2023. I'm not putting it out before Christmas. It is not a Christmas story. (laughs) I do have a Christmas story. It's called A Midwinter Sacrifice and it's set at the Bath Christmas markets, which are on at the moment. And that is not really very Christmassy either, but it is set at the Christmas markets, but it does have the word sacrifice in. So you clearly know that it's one of my stories as JF Penn. So that's A Midwinter Sacrifice if you'd like a dark Christmas. So in useful stuff, uh, I'm speaking at the History Quill Conference in early February, which is an online conference for historical fiction writers. If you write historical fiction, it's, uh, you know, available globally. Go to thecreativepen.com forward slash quill 23. So Q-U-I-L-L 23. Link in the show notes. Great conference. Loads of really good speakers, including Jane Friedman, who's coming up today as well. And Dave Chesson from Kindlepreneur. Also, a couple of shout outs to podcast Dan Padavona's new podcast is out now, the Author's Mindset podcast. And many of you enjoyed the interview with Dan a few weeks ago, and his show is now up. And yeah, it's very upbeat mindset type thing. Um, And he does also talk about book marketing tips. And then also a shout out for Rachel Heron's podcast, How Do You Write, episode 333, which is on what do you do if your book isn't selling? And it's a great episode as many of our books do not sell well. And this is another sort of uh, callback to the interview with Jane today because she um, repeats one of the stats from that Penguin Random House trial. 25% of traditionally published titles don't sell more than a dozen copies, which is just kind of gobsmacking. Now, if that's true for traditional publishing with everything they have of course, it's true for indie authors. So yeah, some books sell disproportionately more than others. That's true for all of us. It's true for my backlist. It's true for Rachel's. It's true for Dan Padavona's. It's true for everyone's. Books don't sell all the same. They sell differently. And sometimes they're the books that you really didn't expect. (laughs) 
So yes, uh, Rachel, it's it's interesting to listen to Dan Padovona. I listen to Dan Padovona and then I listen to Rachel's episode. And they're very different people, both wonderful in their own ways. And I recommend them both. So there you go. So thanks for your emails and tweets and comments on YouTube. John Parnham said about Barnaby's interview on choosing self-publishing. I found this interview very interesting and inspiring. What an articulate and intelligent discussion. It was very enjoyable. Thanks, John. I appreciate that. Royston Stone said, Mr. Jameson hit the nail on the head. Choosing to go independent is a question of time. Do you wait another two years or longer or forever or do you get started? Go indie and work at your own pace instead of waiting for permission to move forward. It's interesting, this word permission is so, it's so important. I remember writing a blog post years ago when I started out in my indie career, just going, I have permission, you have permission, write what you want, publish what you want, market how you like, you have permission to do that. And it's very powerful, but it's also quite scary. So I get it. (laughs) But um, thanks, Royston. And thanks to Shane Kawalilak, author, who says, my last project had me driving through Saskatchewan. (laughs) I don't know if I'm saying that right. For 13 weeks. And when I saw the cemetery in Big R, I thought of you. And it was a lovely picture of a snowy cemetery with a full moon. One picture has the moon up top and one with Jupiter. Beautiful. I do love a snowy cemetery under the moonlight. (laughs) Oh, and if um, for, for those of you also with a gothic persuasion, I definitely recommend Wednesday on Netflix. Brilliant show. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, so remember, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen, send me pictures of where you're listening to the show, email me, Joanna, at The Creative Pen, or leave a comment on the blog or the YouTube channel. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. So today's episode is sponsored by Kobo Writing Life, Kobo's free, fast and easy self-publishing platform. KWL was built by authors for authors and their team of dedicated book lovers is always working hard to help you reach new readers around the world. Kobo's author-first approach is one of the reasons they developed a promotions tool. This is an easy and affordable way for you to market your book directly to Kobo readers. They offer lots of promotions that don't require you to drop your price because they know when you publish wide, it can be a pain to coordinate pricing across multiple retailers. Any promotions listed as a percentage off mean you don't have to change your price as the discount will be provided by a promotion code at checkout. If that sounds good to you, keep an eye out for percent off promotions and buy more, save more sales where you can submit your titles and leave the rest at Kobo. And if you're taking part in a promotion, be sure to tell your readers about it. The promotions tool is updated on a weekly basis. So make sure you're taking a regular look to see what's on offer. And if there's an opportunity that matches your books and marketing plans. Right. And I'll just break out from my ad read to tell you that I have a recurring uh, calendar notification. Every three weeks I go in to uh, KWL into the promotions tab and I literally submit every book possible for every possible promotion. And I get some of them. I don't get lots of them. But this is how to sell more books on Kobo Writing Life. Um, box sets are great. Uh, you know, the, the, definitely this is the way to sell more books on Kobo. So if you um, if you are a KWL author, as in you promote directly, you 
published directly on Kobo Writing Life and you don't have that promotions tab, email the team at writinglife at kobo.com and they will enable it for you. And if you want to learn more about KWL, check out the Kobo Writing Life podcast. Wherever you're listening to this, you will find the Kobo Writing Life podcast. You can create your free account today at kobo.com forward slash writing life. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time in creating the show, especially the extra futurist episodes, is sponsored by my patrons. Thanks to new and returning patrons this week, Melissa Story. And I did say I'd do my Q&A last week, but I will be doing it this week. (laughs) I will get it done. Thanks to everyone who supports the show. And if you support the show, you get the extra Q&A episode, which is around 45 minutes of me answering specific questions from patrons. And if you support the show, you get the backlist as well. You can obviously pop in and out of Patreon. You don't have to subscribe forever. Um, If you find benefit in the show, I really appreciate it. You can support the show at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O n.com forward slash the creative pen right let's get into the interview with jane jane friedman is the author of the business of being a writer as well as other non-fiction books she's also an award-winning publishing commentator writer editor professional speaker and teacher so welcome back to the show jane thank you i'm so delighted to be back Oh, yeah. So you were last on the show in 2018. Seems like a different world. (laughs) I know. But for those who don't know you, tell us a bit more about you and how you got into writing and publishing. Well, it's been a lifelong endeavor. I was a creative writing major in college, and I went straight into a publishing job right out of college. It was a mid-sized commercial publisher. I stayed for about 12 years, and then I had a brief detour into teaching at university level where I was teaching writing. And then I went back into publishing, and now I'm full-time freelance. So I write a newsletter, I host classes, I go to publishing conferences. So it's all been kind of one long, unbroken focus on writing and publishing. Mm, Yeah. And we're going to come back to the hot sheet in a minute. But I wanted to talk to you as, I mean, you do just fantastic commentary on the publishing industry and you've seen so many different things. But I wanted your reflections, I guess, on the last couple of years. Like how has the pandemic and increasing online sales changed, I guess, the more traditional publishing industry? Because I feel like indies, like myself, we were already doing everything online, but I feel mm-hmm. like the tradi- the pandemic has really shifted traditional. So what are your thoughts on yes. that? Yes. I mean, the first of all, the pandemic was great for traditional publishing generally. I mean, there are supply chain issues, of course, which are still affecting everyone. But print book sales were up in 2021. And for a mature industry, that is like astonishing. Uh, And they're still doing pretty well in 2022. Comparatively, I think they're down maybe 5% versus last year, which is still great. It's like, it's above where we were in 2019. Something interesting that happened too, is that bookshop and independent bookstores are in a better position. Bookshop being the online retailer that competes against Amazon they're very flexible. They're more focused on the things that only they can do well. And they're benefiting from people who want to consume more conscientiously. I think the bookshop uh, founder said virtuous shopping, a virtuous alternative to Amazon is what he was hoping for. And they have, <laughs> they've succeeded. There's now a UK version of bookshop. I think there might be one in Spain. So yeah, I think the pandemic 
really helped the launch of that because they were established in January 2020, having no idea what was about to happen. Uh, The other thing that was very positive for novelists in particular is that adult fiction sales came back after many years of decline. So at first it was believed this was driven by comfort reads, Um, but now I would say it's probably more TikTok driven. Sales are also more backlist oriented. That part of that is the shift to online sales, but TikTok is also again, driving some of that. And I think the other piece of good news for maybe all, well, I think it's good news for all authors is that the big five aren't actually selling as much combined as everyone else. So I do see that it's a very diverse market. And I know we'll talk about some concerns about the diverse market uh, a little later, but it's, I think generally books have done really well the past few years, no matter where you're sitting in the industry. So yeah, you mentioned the big five there. And one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about is kind of what's shocked the publishing industry, a lot of authors anyway. In September 2022, the US Department of Justice took Penguin Random House to court over the potential acquisition of Simon and Schuster. And the proceedings of the trial brought to light a lot of surprising things, or perhaps only surprising to authors Mm -hmm. and people who didn't know much about the industry. So I wanted to hear what were some of the things that stood out for you, because you did a ton of commentary around this. Yes. So the things that shocked the average person and even a lot of authors, frankly, that have been in the industry a while, the big CEOs of these enormous companies saying they don't know what will sell, Um, you know, portraying the industry as just a lot, as a lot of random bets, which people have casually said that for many, many years, that it's a throw it against the wall and see what sticks sort of industry. But I think, I guess, I guess there's, there there was this assumption that if you put a big CEO on the stand and you ask them questions under oath, that they would show more business acumen than they did. So I think that was very shocking to people, discouraging and like as if like they were denying they had any responsibility over what books would do well. And I think the other reality that was thrown into just stark relief is that most books aren't getting a lot of marketing investment unless there are already clear indicators after the book releases that it's going to do well, then the publisher will funnel more support toward it. But unless the book is getting one of these really big advances, there is just kind of a lot of waiting and seeing uh, rather than proactive marketing and promotion. The other thing that came out is that, and again, if you study the industry closely like I do, this was not a surprise, but I think for the general public, it was shocking that most books don't earn out their advances and publishers knowingly pay more to get the books they want, knowing the advance won't earn out rather than negotiate on anything else. Like they don't want to give up their ebook rights, their audiobook rights. They don't want to really mess around with the royalty rates. They're really just paying a lot more upfront to run their business. And obviously only the big five are able to play that sort of game. The smaller publishers can't. And that's part of what the trial was about. So what we saw is that it's a really small percentage of winners that drive 
profitability for the big five. And sometimes they know what those are going to be, or they're paying larger advances thinking that they know what the winners will be. But more often than not, it's the surprises, the things that they maybe paid a more modest advance. And then it just shocked everyone how well it performed. And it was portrayed as almost out of your hands. It was the Penguin Random House CEO who made the most I think, quote worthy (laughs) comments where he's like, publishing is random. That's why we're called Random House. And I mean, he's said that line a lot at industry conferences. But again, to say it on the stand under oath, I think was just surprising for folks. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't know that. I hadn't heard that before. And I guess we had assumed that the name didn't mean that word. Like we didn't think it was, maybe it was some, I don't know, uh, someone's name or to hear that coming from the CEO, it's discouraging in a way if you want to get traditional publishing deal. But to me, I actually felt like, do you know what? If the CEO with all the power and all the money thinks that it's random, then as independent authors where we're just one person on their own, then that's actually encouraging because it explains why, like I've got 35 books now and most of my income comes from a handful of them. Mm -hmm. And -hmm. and obviously every single one I thought it was going to sell, Yes, (laughs) but it's only a few. So, I mean, what encouragement, I guess, can we take from this or, or what can independent authors take from this sort of stuff from traditional publishing? Yeah, I think exactly what you said, that it it is, in fact, a pretty level playing field, especially considering you can be distributed in all the same places online as, as a big five. You can't necessarily tell the difference between a big five title and a self-published title when you're shopping online. I saw a good number of small presses, independent presses who were watching the coverage saying, wow, they the big five have the same problems that I have. They don't have any secret sauce. They have more money. That's what they do have, but they don't necessarily have any better instincts. So I think this is the encouragement that any small publisher or author can take, that there is some equity in the playing field. And the fact that Penguin Random House, it was revealed, you know, when those two big companies, Penguin and Random House, when they merged, I think this was around 2012, The trial showed that over the last 10 years, they've lost market share rather than gain it. So the merger did nothing to help them in the market. And part of their motivation for acquiring Simon & Schuster was, in fact, to make sure that they retain the market share by buying a big list. And so I'm sure you've seen, your listeners have seen this happen over the last 10 years. There's a lot of acquisitions happening, a lot of purchasing of backlist happening because more, a bigger and bigger percentage of sales are backlist sales. So I think this also speaks to the indie author experience, which is that as you build up a fuller list, once you get beyond the first title, the third title, the fifth title, that's kind of the engine that often runs a stable business. It's And then you just keep adding more books onto that. That's the model. Yes. And I think when Michael Anderley and Craig Martell started 20 books to 50K, for some people that's scary, like 20 books is is a lot of books for a lot of people. But that model, I think it kind of holds true, actually. Yeah, it it really does. And I think it still holds true. But the other one, (laughs) just from the hot sheet on August the 31st, 2022, so your newsletter, it was about how many books sell. You said out of the 58,000 trade titles published per year, fully half of those titles sell fewer than one dozen books. (laughs) (laughs) So again, for people listening, 
I think a lot of indie authors think, oh my goodness, I only sold 50 books this month or whatever. But again, that might be better than a, a ton of traditionally published authors. Yes. That particular statistic got shared all over social media and it raised like it raised people's hackles. Like some people thought there it can't be true. That that must be a distortion. And I was just so tickled when someone from NPD Bookscan, which is the US organization that or business that tracks book sales print, um, print mainly print, but they also look at ebook sales and audio as well. So they actually confirmed, okay, so it might not be quite as bad as that figure that was cited at the trial. They couldn't figure out where that number came from. But when they crunched the numbers, they saw that it was about, I want to say 25% of titles don't sell more than a dozen copies. So like it was big enough that you could feel like what was cited at the trial. Okay. Yes. It's, there are a lot of books that just don't perform. And as you say, if the publishing house doesn't put money into marketing it or effort, which costs money because everyone has their time as well, then it doesn't go anywhere. And that's, again, the same truth for an indie author is you can put your book up online and no one's going to buy it. Like everyone has to do marketing. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that, I don't know, we've been bashing on about this for a long time, haven't we, Jay? <laughs> Why is it that some people still don't believe it? I mean, it's it's kind of crazy. But I, I did also want to, I just want to ask you about this because so traditionally published editors and people who work for a company, they don't get paid based on the success of a book, right? So an agent will, but someone, as in they'll get a percentage of the advance, but even then their future money is not based on the success of that book. And certainly if you earn a salary from a publishing house, your salary is not dependent on the success of a book. And so is that part of the problem? in a way, is that as long as you acquire books and publish books, the sales side is almost completely separate. Whereas for an indie author like myself, I have to make sure my books sell, otherwise mm. I can't pay my mortgage or whatever. Right. Yes. So agents are entirely driven by the advance. I'm not going to say they don't care about the royalties, but they know the statistics that we discussed that most books don't earn out the advance. So they're very focused on that. And they don't play any role in the marketing and promotion and publicity of books. And so that leaves you with the editors and the people inside the house. And they're looking at so many different titles at once. And they're trying to make an entire season of books pass muster on a profitability level. And they know that it's probably going to be one or two titles that bring everything home. And so as long as they can do that, they're not likely to lose their job. But certainly editors and others, I'm sure there are people who have been laid off or fired or otherwise um, sidelined because they're not known for picking at least a few de decent winners in a year. But it's true that I think it would probably be considered crass or not entirely appropriate to measure an editor's merit on sales alone. Mm. Yes, it's that brilliant discussion on quality in mm -hmm. inverted commas, which we've been having for a very long time, where some books might be considered quality, but don't sell very much and vice versa. But Isa, let's get back to that court case, because we've just, as we record this, we've just had the news that Paramount, who owns Simon & Schuster, won't support the appeal. So mm -hmm. Penguin Random House were going to take this judgment to appeal. So now mm -hmm. it's unlikely to go ahead. Now, of course, we can only discuss hypotheticals. We do 
do not know. But given other publishers have expressed interest, as well as KKR, which is an investment firm, which own things like medical devices and stuff like that. So what are your thoughts? Like, is it better if a publishing house buys another publishing house? Or is it better if a different kind of company do it? And how could this affect authors? Because I believe you've been through this, haven't you, when you you worked for Writer's Digest? Yes. So I worked for a, a publisher called F&W Publications, which owned Writer's Digest. And they changed hands at least three times while I worked for them, uh, always going to a different private equity or financial buyer, like a KKR, as you mentioned. And there are pros and cons both ways. I mean, if I I personally, having been through the private equity nightmare, <laughs> I, I kind of think the grass is greener on the other side. I feel like I would rather be purchased by a publisher. Now, it's possible that that could still happen for Simon & Schuster because the other there are other big five companies that are interested in buying it. And the judge in her ruling, like explicitly stated, I can envision another publisher buying Simon and Schuster as almost as if to encourage like HarperCollins or Hachette to come in and make their offer. And I, I'm not entirely sure if they did make an offer. I think HarperCollins definitely did, but it wasn't as rich as the Penguin Random House offer. Simon and Schuster's doing really well right now, so they're still an attractive acquisition. But I guess there's the problem of in- interest rates are higher, so there might be more. It might be more highly leveraged at this point. Back to the pros and cons. Like if another publisher absorbs Simon and Schuster, you're going to have the so-called redundancies. So there will likely be some sort of layoffs. Imprints will may merge or reconfigure, and generally agents and authors don't like that. If private equity were to step in, then what you get is cost cutting. Typically, they're trying to squeeze, squeeze, squeeze more profit. It depends on if this, if it's a not a publisher who's buying. What I would be looking for is: does this appear to be a long-term investment, or are they looking to turn it around in a few years and squeeze that profit out in those few years? So I don't. To me, it doesn't look great either way. Mm. <laughs> I mean, certainly if Penguin Random House had won, there would have been layoffs of one kind or another. There would have been imprint reconfigurations. But there was, you know, people who were, let's say, less critical of consolidation, I think did feel that Penguin Random House might make the best home for Simon & Schuster just because it there was the sense that they have better marketing and promotion, better systems that would bring some discipline to Simon & Schuster that maybe it doesn't have right now. Whether those problems get resolved under a private equity sort of buyer, who knows? So yeah, we'll mm-hmm. see. Yeah. So for people listening, like if authors are with a Simon & Schuster imprint, or I mean, to be honest, any company can be bought or sold. And a lot of the publishing contracts, the IP will stay like they don't have an automatic reversion clause that says once this is sold, you can have it back. Because of course, the valuation of the intellectual property is what makes the company so valuable. They can't, you know, you can understand that from the publishing company perspective. So for an author who might be part of that imprint, what what are the things that might happen regardless of who buys them? Mm-hmm. Uh, there could be some orphaned books. There could be authors who lose their editor. 
And so then you end up in this really horrible situation. I mean, it's bad enough when you have a publisher who's not investing a lot in marketing and promotion, but usually at least you have your editor who's your champion inside the house advocating on some level for attention. But if your editor leaves, you're just really up the creek and you may not have interest in your next book if that editor departs. So it it could be really bad news for those who lose either their editor or the imprint that they're publishing under. Usually it's a small percentage. It just depends on the how much change is enacted by the new owner. And I would suggest that authors in that situation would talk to their agent. Also have a mm-hmm. look at your contract. Like what does your contract actually say mm-hmm. <laughs> about a situation like this? Because I do know some people in Writer's Digest who had been published there who got their rights back mm-hmm. or were given a choice. And of course, some authors just would prefer to have a publisher, but others wanted to go indie. So there, there might be some choices at that that point. So take control, I think, probably be a tip. But you also had a great focus piece in the hot sheet on the challenges of the midlist author. So obviously, apart from the upheaval in the industry, what, what are some of those other challenges and your recommendations for authors? Well, earlier I mentioned an effect of the pandemic is increasing backlist sales, although this was a trend that was happening over the last 10 years and the pandemic just sped it up. So you know, this is where every new author or every new title is just competing against this growing catalog of existing titles. Older titles are more discoverable than ever. And I think the big five publishers in particular seem to be struggling with launching new authors and then also maintaining enthusiasm, excitement, and media coverage for their mid-list authors who, you know, their next book may not necessarily be what we would call like breakout material, but it's still another really good solid book. <laughs> mm. And it's really hard now with fewer media outlets where books are reliably reviewed or covered. It's just really hard to get any sort of attention. And usually the outlets that are left, they focus on books that are going to get the biggest conversation going, like the Mike Pence memoir that's recently come out. The other thing is that publishers can't pay for placement and physical bookstores anymore, not at Barnes & Noble anyway, um, which is still the biggest chain in the US. So where do they have to run to? They have fewer newspapers, magazines, traditional media outlets. They can't pay to like have their key titles on display across the country. They have recently been stymied by changes in Facebook ads. It's become a little more difficult. Yes. And Amazon obviously holds a lot of the cards in terms of visibility and publishers don't have the same data or insights or direct-to-consumer power as Amazon. Now that said, they are some of them are really getting better at the direct-to-reader, building email lists, doing better on social. Some are getting active on TikTok. But if a mid-list author hasn't been doing their own direct-to-reader marketing, like having a decent website, building an email list, engaging with readers somewhere online, finding ways to spread the word without the publisher's help, they're in a very vulnerable position. And I find that some of the authors who just get caught where their publishers basically drop them, they end up with Amazon publishing, not self-publishing, but going to one of those imprints and because Amazon can reach the readers and boost them in a way that they haven't been boosted before. 
So the other thing is that publishers, and I can say this having worked for one and seeing this firsthand, they're very perverse and how they fill in budget gaps. You know, rather than trying to sell more of what they have or focusing on what's succeeding, they'll just publish more books, mm. new books, in the hopes of finding something that sticks. It's it's really, you know, quite lazy when you think of it, but it's the easiest solution. Just put in a, another title in the season. So that obviously hurts mid-list authors as well. I, I've got to take that criticism for independent authors too, though, <laughs> which is a lot of the time we would much rather just write another book yes. than try and figure out how to sell the book that isn't selling very well. And I'll put myself in that camp just as much as anyone else. It's it's interesting. I mean, you've, you've had a wonderful chart on your website, Book Publishing Paths. I'll link to it in the show notes. And the URL that you've used, I, you, you redirect it, right, every year you update yes. the same page and oh my goodness has that changed I mean your writing is getting smaller and smaller <laughs> <laughs> because there are so many paths to publication now and what yeah. we might have come across as a little negative I want to say in this discussion so far but can you maybe just outline some of the choices because I feel like choices are incredibly great for creatives these days, those who want to look at their choices. So is that traditional publishing old school model? I mean, obviously it's not dead, but what are the choices that people have and who do they suit, I guess? One thing that's been fascinating to me is some of the opportunities that agents can offer authors. Now, obviously this assumes that you've been able to secure an agent and you don't have to have one to access these opportunities, but there are a lot of work for hire opportunities in TV, film, entertainment, novelizations of of movies and TV shows, video games. And I think most writers aren't even aware these opportunities exist because they are a little bit under the radar and you would have to like kind of already be in that community to know about it. And then I also find that agents are helping authors with negotiating app-driven adaptations of their work. So for instance, Wattpad Webtoon just launched a new app called Yonder which serializes backlist titles from publishers, or you could do a new original exclusive for Yonder, as you might, let's say, for Kindle Vela. And I've always been very fascinated by the rise of these online literature apps, whether it's Wattpad, Webtoon, Tapas, Radish, now Yonder, because I, I see young people and a very diverse global audience engaging with those apps. And they're very sticky. So people tend to be very loyal and they're reading maybe 30 minutes a day through these apps. So I see authors, you know, it helps if you have an agent with some of these contracts are a bit funny. So it it helps to have an agent's eye on them. But authors too, and indie authors as well, have been working with these apps, I think, in very unique and innovative ways. The other thing that's not on that key book publishing past chart, but probably should be, is just the rise of audio storytelling, audio first storytelling. So when you look at how Spotify, Storytel, Audible, and there are other companies, they're all like really fiercely competing for the audio listener. And we're also seeing some blurring of the lines between podcast-based storytelling and then audiobooks. So there have also been a lot of opportunities in that sector, whether you have an agent or not, to sell your fiction. There's also this increased interest from 
this is really from authors who are dropped by their traditional publishers. There's increased interest in hybrids and what they do, but it's just a very, um, I have to throw up the red flag. It's a very mixed situation because so many different companies might call themselves a hybrid, but they're not really giving you the benefits of, of a hybrid in the sense that you can get that traditional publishing experience with distribution into bookstores and libraries. But I do see a lot of traditional authors deciding, look, I'm rather than struggle further with traditional publishing, I'm just going to work with this other company and pay for what I need. Or authors who do a sort of combination of everything. I mean, Colleen Hoover has to be the biggest yes. example, given that she started out self-publishing. In fact, I think she still does some books as an indie. She's got, I think, three different publishers as well now. Yes. Uh, obviously, she's surfing TikTok and has sold more books than the Bible, I think, this, this year, which is just kind of crazy. And she's a classic example of someone who's just using multiple ways to market and multiple ways right. to reach people almost, I don't want to say, well, I do want to say using traditional publishing to reach more yeah. readers, a bit like James Patterson, basically my own imprint and my own business. So mm-hmm. is this literally what authors have to have now? Is there room for the author who does not want to do any marketing? Is, is that path still possible in traditional? It Boy, it's really hard. I mean, I think that there are a handful of authors who have been very astute early on in, let's say, developing a Patreon, and they're able to get a small circle of supporters there to help fund their ongoing work. I'm thinking right now of Monica Byrne, who's a literary author who probably, you know, for most people in her position, there's no hope of making a living on book sales alone. So she knows she has to fill in the gaps with something else, and she does it through Patreon. So is she actively marketing and promoting that? Maybe not, but she has these really key windows of opportunity, like when a book releases or if she gets a really good critical review to really make sure that people know, look, I my work depends on you supporting it. Now is the time to join my Patreon. So even if you're not doing active marketing and promoting, you need to be thinking business model in terms of who, how, where are you going to get the support that you need? Brandon Sanderson is another one in that same circle as Colleen Hoover, where he he now is credited with the most successful Kickstarter in history, $42 million he raised for, I think it was three books that- Four, four uh, books. Yeah. Four books that he wrote, I have to assume, over the pandemic that he did not give to his publisher, Tor. And <laughs> now, fascinating, Tor is going to release those books in a print edition hardcover. They're not doing the ebook or the audio because I presume Sanderson will not grant them those rights. So I'm like all for this, but he's also something of, I don't want to necessarily say an outlier, but not just any author can go and have a $40 million Kickstarter. (laughs) Uh, So it's, he worked toward that over many years. Mm, For sure. But what's interesting is Kickstarter, Patreon, a lot of people earning a couple of thousand mm-hmm. dollars for a release. And given the numbers we quoted earlier about what you can get potentially <laughs> with a book, I think the model, I mean, for me next year, I mean, I've uh, this year I did my first sell direct. I was I would only sell direct for a month. And then only after I'd kind of done all my direct sales, then I put the book up on 
Amazon, Kobo, Apple, uh, Print, mm-hmm. all of that. And next year, I'm going to double that. I'm going to do a Kickstarter followed by a direct month on my Shopify store. And again, only then put it up everywhere else. So essentially taking the biggest bite of the cherry mm-hmm. where I pay the lowest percentage to other people before then releasing it. And like that's the model Sanderson did there, but still putting it everywhere, just putting it everywhere right much later on. So, I mean, I just want want to ask you about that too, though, because what really annoys me about some of these traditional media studies is they don't see any of this stuff. They Mm. are comparing traditional book sales on, say, Amazon with independent authors, but they don't see things like KU borrows. They don't see direct sales or Kickstarter or Patreon or any or subscription models. They don't see this. So is it that they don't see it or are they deliberately ignoring this other market? I think so much of it is, well, anecdotal and not tracked by the industry sources they're paying attention to, whether that's AAP or NPD BookScan or whatever. And I think there's recognition that the creator economy, if one accepts that term, that this is very active, that authors are using it, that it's affecting every single industry, not just books. I think they recognize that, but I'm not quite sure how much they understand especially when you just look at digital sales, how much of the pie has migrated over to independent authors. When it was very recently that the head of Kobo talked about how independent authors represent a whole other Penguin Random House for that company in terms of sales. And to me, no surprise, because I... I've been observing this segment of the industry for so long. But again, when you state that out in public to the average person, they're just, their mind is blown. (laughs) And I wish that it seems like it shouldn't, we shouldn't be having that same conversation anymore. It is a little frustrating to keep having that conversation. It's been over a decade we've been talking about this. (laughs) So it's, it is a curious thing. And certainly I, I do think there are publishers who are very strong, like in, romance or in other genre fiction areas, I think they know and understand, but no one wants to talk about self-publishing eating their lunch. So it's, you know, (laughs) I can understand. Yeah. And I I predict we're going to see studies saying that traditional publishing is taking back market share in these areas, but what's actually happening is all those sales have gone direct or they're Mm. on subscription models or they're just not measurable. But let's come back to business models. And you are a nonfiction author and it's really important for nonfiction authors to, and, and very more lucrative, in fact, to have these multiple streams of income. And one your revenue streams is The Hot Sheet, which is a fantastic paid newsletter for authors and publishers, which I subscribe to. And I highly recommend people listening, you subscribe to The Hot Sheet. It's it's great. So I wanted to ask you, is this something I'm considering? I mean, I've had an email list since 2008 when I got started, was when I started my newsletter, but it's not been paid. And I have considered doing a paid newsletter. So what are your tips for those writers who might want to add a paid newsletter to their business? And also, why didn't you use Substack? Which, <laughs> Well, that's the easy question to answer. A Substack wasn't around when ah. I launched Hotsheet. Now, if I were starting today, it would make a ton of sense to go there first. Now that I have my own system set up, it makes no sense to switch and give up 10% of my proceeds. 
uh, because my costs are super low. So there is a point at which if you get really successful on Substack, you will probably want to move over to your own turf. But I think Substack is very attractive when you're starting out because they have a built-in recommendation system and they're trying to build this community around the people who write there. And so you can really benefit from the cross-promotional opportunities. But that aside, before you even think about going there, whether it's on Substack or something else, you have to think about what you already do for free that can act as lead generation to that newsletter. And Joanna, you've got so many things. Like I don't think this will be an issue for you. But you have to get people aware of what you do. And then you kind of level them up into paying over time. So there might be a free version of the newsletter. That's like the dead easy option. And it's what most people do. Not terribly imaginative or creative, but it can work. If you have a blog or a podcast or you have social media activity, you need something that indicates the value you provide. And then if people are really motivated to get more of it, hopefully they will pay for the newsletter. Okay. But here's the trap that I think people fall into. Sometimes the paid newsletter is just more of the same. And People are so pressed for time. They don't necessarily want more. Sometimes they actually want less. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you have to consider what holds value for the person who would pay. Sometimes it's actually as simple as they just want to support you. Other times they want the ability to interact and comment. And this is where Substack is very useful because you can restrict commenting or other features just to people who pay. So you have to have first a real understanding of who it is you're trying to attract and what's going to be motivating for them. I think where this gets really challenging for fiction authors, I don't know that a newsletter, like I've seen some people try to serialize in newsletter format or an email format. I don't know that it really works that well, despite what is it, Dracula, that's been so popular on Substack. (laughs) Despite that, I think if you're just an unknown person, without a classic, I think it can be tough. And I would probably be looking more at apps where people go to read stories, whether that's Velo or Yonder or Wattpad or whatever. But for nonfiction folks, I mean, the only limit is really your imagination. And I've seen people use all sorts of strategies, whether it's you have to pay to interact or you have to pay to be able to ask a question and have it addressed. You have to pay if you want access to the monthly round table or whatever. So you do have to think about, I would encourage not just more, but different. Well, it's interesting. I mean, your hot sheet, it's so much work. I mean, you do it every two weeks. I can't imagine you doing it any more often than that because you put a lot of work into it. And I guess that that is the question is it's money for time, which Mm. is if you stop doing that, we stop paying basically. So it is really dependent on you as a curator, as a creative, because you do a lot of longer articles and I know how much information you consume. I mean, I I do the same. We both uh, do look at similar things, but your in-depth information, I always look at your, read the whole of your email. I mean, because it's so good. And that's what holds me back is and, and the question for most authors is, would I be better off writing, as Christine Catherine Rush says, and what she means is, would I be better off writing another book? So what do you think in terms of that money for time equation? And I guess, what type of personality does it suit to do that? And Because it's a very different way of writing, isn't it? 
It is. My particular newsletter, the hot sheet, is very transactional in the way that you express. Like if I stop doing it, people will stop paying. (laughs) They're not paying it just out of good feelings for me. They're expecting a benefit. Now, I have seen some paid newsletters and some paid efforts that are, in fact, more about support. I want to support what this person's mission is or what they're attempting to do uh, in the community. And in those cases, people will be very forgiving. But I modeled Hot Sheet on, I'm on a schedule. I promise to deliver something every two weeks, and it's going to be meaningful and worth your time. And I don't expect you to pay me if I don't deliver. Now, the good thing about Hot Sheet is that it's scalable. So if I do get the more people I get, the, obviously the more profitable it is. It doesn't take me any more time to write for two hundred than uh, to write for two thousand than two hundred. So that's the good news. But I have seen a lot of instances of burnout because the newsletter ends up being this thing on top of everything else, and it's. Maybe it's because it's the new shiny and you want, you're thinking, oh, well, you're influenced by trends and influencers who are talking about this. I mean, I pursued it before it was quite so sexy or trendy. And I, I really like the churn of it. Like the worst thing for me is actually writing a book because it requires (laughs) this really long-term focus and effort. And I don't like going back over things again and again and again. So hot sheet really suits me as a writer because I can, I it's it's so compressed. It's very deadline oriented, and once I'm done, it's on to the next thing. So maybe that can help some writers think about if you do want a transactional newsletter, do you like that high churn? And if not, maybe think instead about a Patreon or something where it might be a little bit more about community support, and you're not locked into some sort of delivery schedule. Yeah, thank you. That has, that's actually really helped me. And, and I've really been debating whether to do something on the AI side for creativity, because that's something I, and because I have so much more information than I can share on this podcast that I pick up every week. And because it changes so fast, I thought, well, maybe that would suit more of a newsletter model. But some of the things you've said there have really got me thinking. And I know people <laughs> listening, I think that's really useful. But I do want to talk about the future because you and I do share an interest in it. And in fact, we've known each other, I think, more than a decade, right? We mm-hmm. met on Twitter probably 2009 or mm-hmm. something like that. So we've seen things come true, I guess. <laughs> yeah. uh, the rise of self-publishing, the rise of podcasting. I mean, we've seen a lot of things happen that we have commentated on and often picked in advance. So I I, I am definitely more techno-optimist than you, <laughs> being quite bullish yes. on things where you're more sceptical. And mm. I think that's a personality difference, let alone yeah. anything else. Mm. But what do you see coming in the next few years? A decade's probably too far, but what do you think are interesting? trends? Well, artificial intelligence is just getting more amazing by the second. I mean, just in the last year, the strides made in AI-generated text, AI-generated art, AI narration, like it has all just skyrocketed, especially on the narration. I don't think I would have expected the voices to become as good as fast as they have. And I think we're going to see many more publishers, especially the smaller ones, academic ones, using synthetic voices to get 
into the audio market in a bigger way. And I think it's going to hugely benefit self-publishing authors as well who can't afford the production of a professional narrator. And I don't think the professional narrators will be out of work whatsoever. They have plenty of work from the traditional publishers. This is going to help get those smaller titles that don't justify the investment, you know, broaden their reach uh, by getting into audio. The AI writing thing, I was probably more of a skeptic a few years ago, but seeing again, just the development and the sophistication that's occurring. It's interesting, but I don't, again, I don't think writers are threatened. I think that we still care as readers about a person who's written this story. I don't, I mean, I could maybe be very provincial in this view, but I don't know that we want to read stories by AI. I guess we'll see, but I can see AI helping with brainstorming and doing things that are on the more tedious side that we might not want to do ourselves, um, helping helping when we're stuck. So that's also a really interesting way to think about what AI might do to the future of writing and publishing. What else? Well, I should pause there and see if there's a direction you want to go in mm, that I haven't well, mentioned. Yeah, obviously, I've been talking about that for a while. <laughs> <laughs> but even I am surprised by how fast some of this is going. And again, as we record this, there are rumors of GPT-4, which is mm. the next iteration of generative text model, which will be, I think, will be very, very interesting. And again, like you, I don't believe that AI, an AI, is going to write a novel. It will never, I don't even know if it will ever be like that, certainly not in our lifetime. But I think what's interesting is the percentage, if you have 100% human on one end and 100% AI on the other end, where where will the slider go? Like how much is AI generated and how much is human directed? That is that is the tension. And I don't think traditional publishers, again, have thought about this and what that means. I mean, I've been advocating for a sort of data licensing model where authors with works in copyright will get paid for licensing their books to these large models. And that might be what happens after some of the lawsuits that are going to be coming through. I mean, I don't think AI's the development will stop. What I would like to see is this kind of recompense for creators for training Mm. the models. But I think, Mm. yeah, that's a super interesting area and perhaps the most... The most important in terms of tools, because, you know, you and I are recording this over Zoom, which didn't exist when we first met. There's so much technology that has enabled the business models of today. That is what I see for the next decade is all these new tools, all these new places, all these new ways to connect, all the new ways to create that I kind of see in a decade's time that will things will be as different in 2032 as you and I here in 2022, things were so different a decade ago. Mm-hmm. It will be that much change. Yeah. The, there are, hearing you talk about this, there are a few other things that I, I, I'm keeping an eye on. <laughs> so <laughs> one of them is, you mentioned traditional publishers may not really be paying much attention I, I really wonder what happens when like someone feeds the entirety of some famous author's backlist into an AI and they start generating new stories by that author. W- what are the courts going to say about that? I'm very curious to see what happens. Like if you pile all of Stephen King in, into an AI, can it generate a feasible Stephen King story out of it? I've also noticed Google is getting smarter about filtering out 
anything that's AI generated or like ranking it lower. So I've had questions about if I think AI will destroy the blogging community or just short form writing of any kind. And I don't think so, at least not yet, because especially for blogs, I think this also applies to podcasts. We're reading or we're consuming to get someone's particular lens on the world, their perspective or attitude or voice. And so far, I'm not entirely, well, I haven't seen GPT-4 yet, but I haven't seen AI create that lens or voice that can be very compelling for people. And then the last thing I'm on the audio side, I am very curious to see how long Audible can hold out against AI narrated books, which they currently don't allow. So when they start allowing them, I think that's going to be a huge deal. Yeah. Just to come back on that, the Stephen King load up all his books and then generate one. My thinking is that traditional publishers own the biggest data set. So Mm. you and I can both think of an imprint, a particular romance imprint that has Mm. had contracts. We don't need to mention any names, but contracts where authors pretty much wrote to a specific market and it was very prescribed. And in any kind of data set, that kind of data would be very valuable. And so I I almost see that a traditional publisher themselves, if they grasped this, Mm. could could utilize their backlist and these tools to generate books. And I mean, how different is that than the ghostwriters writing Mm. in the names of dead authors, which we see all the time? So that would be one thing. The other thing on that Google Google finding AI-generated work, that annoys me so much because Google have their own (laughs) AI-generating tools. And so it really kind of annoys me that they're doing that. But also, again, it's about this. If you just generate an article, and I've been using Lex. Have you seen Lex.page? I don't think I have. Yeah, it's really good. It's super, super good. And I just put in seven tips for new authors or something like that. And it wrote a whole article, but I could with just one click. And I was like, okay, that's that's actually pretty good. But I would need to change it. I would add my own voice to it. So again, Mm -hmm. it's about first draft writing. Mm -hmm. It's not a finished product. And I don't see how Google could tell if I then changed bits and bobs. It's like you upload a new edition of a book and it has to be what 20% different or something right. to warrant being a new edition. So again, all of these things I, I think are not a hundred percent this or a hundred percent that. Yeah. They're yeah. all kind of on the way. And then coming back on Audible, I think they have a very strong narrator community right now. But again, as you say, what at some point it will tip over and then I think they will have a tool. I think like Google Auto Narration, there'll be mm-hmm. an, some kind of ACX audio tool. And as you say, we'll kind of take off everywhere. And that's what Spotify are going to introduce as well. I I Mm. believe that Mm. is a rumor, but that is what (laughs) I've heard. So again, is it just a case in terms of for authors listening? Is it just a case of if you have the rights to your IP, take advantage of the tools in order to, well, just keep surfing this wave of change, I guess? Yes, absolutely. You might instinctively resist, or I think it's in our natures to resist change. So just try and be open to what the tools can enable you to do. So this is going out at the end of 2022. And as we look forward into 2023, I'm interested, Jane, after you've been doing this like just as long as me, we've both been in this industry for so long. What are you up to in 2023? What have you got, got going on? Well, conferences are starting to come back, I think cautiously. 
And so I do expect to be getting around a little bit more. I'll be at Digital Book World in January, which is going back or returning to New York City for the first time in quite quite a while. And Digital Book World, I have like a really long history with because it was actually my publishing company that I worked for that started it while I was still there. So it's been kind of interesting to watch it evolve over the years. I like going to that conference, especially in January, because it kind of, for me, it, it helps me understand what's happening on the edges of media and publishing, because the guy who organizes it, Bradley Metrock, does not follow a traditional publishing sort of program. He's really reaching into every corner of technology. So it's just, I think it helps keep your perspective fresh to not always be going to the book focused conferences. But what else do I have going on? I think, I mean, I'm going to continue what I've always been doing, which is offering classes and doing the newsletter. I'm not, I I am, as far as news items, I am looking to see who the next buyer uh, is or that steps up for Simon & Schuster. It'll be interesting to see what happens with TikTok because it's been so important to lifting traditional publishing sales. And I mean, you and I have both been around long enough to see how things come and go. Mm. (laughs) Will the TikTok effect lessen? Will there be, I don't know, sometimes things go sour, you know, when everyone sees what's working and then everyone jumps on, Mm. things get overcrowded or the system gets manipulated in some way. So I'm just really curious to see if the positive vibes stick around with TikTok. And of course, in the US, it's Every time I bring it up, someone says, well, it's owned by China. How can you even suggest using it? So there are also these privacy and concerns that come into play and people actually still expect the US government might like push it to be sold off. I don't really understand the legal ramifications of that, but here we are. Yes. Well, as ever, I mean, what's so funny, like with your blog and your newsletter now and this podcast, we keep doing this because stuff keeps happening. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it does. It never, like the moment I think, oh, things are getting a bit stagnant and then things kind of change again. And that's what keeps us interested. So tell people where can they find you and the hot sheet and everything you do online? The best place to go is janefriedman.com that links to everything that I do, the newsletters, the classes, the conferences, and so on. Brilliant. Thanks so much for your time, Jane. That was great. Thank you. So I hope you enjoyed the discussion with Jane and that it's given you some insight into traditional publishing and the issues and opportunities for writers. I highly recommend Jane's hot sheet newsletter if you want to stay up to date with the industry. So next week, I'll have a discussion with Orna Ross on what you might need to quit in order to make room for what you want to achieve in 2023. Then I'll have my 2022 roundup, which I do every year, roundup how I did in the year and my did I achieve my goals? <laughs> and then in the new year, my 2023 goals. I'm just finishing those now and we'll look forward to sharing them. So I hope you can make time over the next week or so to reflect on your creative year and also to start considering your goals for 2023. Now I know the new year is some kind of arbitrary 
time difference. <laughs> but personally, I find it really helps to set some goals. And we're writers, you know, we create things out of our heads and put them out into the world. We really, we actually manifest things into the world from our minds. That's what we do. And so it is magic to think about that. And that's what I want us to do for the new year. I'll be sharing my goals soon. So in the meantime, happy Christmas. If you celebrate it, happy holidays, whatever you're doing, happy writing. And I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.